Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Well, without further ado, I'm actually going to hand straight over to Aileen to come and do the reading for us. Okay. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 13 here. Um, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding God or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy, but can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, thank you, Aileen, for reading that famous passage so beautifully. I don't know about you, I often hear this passage at weddings, and um, uh, after you've heard it, there's a sort of calm that just descends on people. It's rather like having had a good meal. You just feel, oh, yeah, that's just so beautiful. Um, which is ironic, really, because this poem <laughs> comes towards the end of a letter uh, written to a very small community in Corinth, Greek city, where things were going very badly wrong. And their response to receiving this letter and reading those words was nothing like the reaction I've just described from audiences today. So before we take a look at the message, let's take a quick look at the context and the reason behind that letter. So to set the scene, Corinth was this uh, thriving city in Greece. It was a bustling city port. In fact, you might see a picture any minute now of where exactly it is in the context of Greece, coming up soon. Where the red dot is, you can see Corinth um, and Athens just above it. And think of an hourglass shape, because the pinch point in the middle is exactly where Corinth was situated, and that was quite significant because it was in the middle of trading routes, and it meant that uh, ships were coming in from the Mediterranean and bringing all sorts of goodies, but also all sorts of fresh ideas and fresh thinking, and there was a similar amount of traffic moving between the north and the south and the south and the north. So it was a prosperous commercial centre, very like New York or London today, busy place. And like those cities, it was the sort of place that you wouldn't really go to retire. 
um, you would go and live there in order to make it, in order to, um, you know, make some money, make something of yourself. And so it attracted a certain entrepreneurial type of person, a go-getter. And Paul, therefore, very strategically decided to go and move there and live there. You can read all about it in Acts 18. He stayed for one and a half years and he sets up this fledgling little community. So no surprise then that that community started to reflect um, the culture and the surroundings of Corinth. And then after a while, he moves on and he decides that he's going to go and live in Ephesus and start up churches there. And after a while there, he starts getting these reports coming back from Corinth about things really kicking off. So it's like the kind of email from hell that no pastor wants to read. This precious little community has suddenly uh, become a monster. And it's problem after problem uh, just suddenly rearing up. So that's why he wrote this letter, because he's trying to deal with these problems. And the letter sort of breaks down into six main sections, each of which has um, a description from Paul about the report he's heard, followed by a kind of facepalm moment where he just goes, no. And then he goes on to sort of apply the gospel to that problem and how they can deal with it. But what he's really saying is that, you know what, Corinthians, you're not actually living what you're believing. So here are the the sections very quickly. Firstly, people have started becoming incredibly divisive over the most unimportant, irrelevant issues. They were scoring points off each other by saying things like, I was baptised by the Saint Paul, okay? And other people would say, well, yeah, but... I was baptised by St Peter, who spent three years living with Jesus. So, you know, I think I'm just that little bit more spiritual than you. And, you know, Paul just says, guys, which one of those two actually died for your sins? Secondly, there's a real problem with people sleeping around in the church. Corinth was full of temples, temples dedicated to foreign gods, and temple prostitution was one of the practices there. People in the church were still using the prostitutes. And um, in addition to that, they had one man who was sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul's saying, you know, come on, guys. You, you know, not even the most reprobate, deviant pagans actually allow incest in their family. You say you're Christians and you're doing that. Thirdly, they had um, people within the church community were taking each other to court. They were suing them, taking out lawsuits on each other. Um, Paul just says, you know, why would you, why would you submit yourselves to a pagan judge when you could be walking in the revelation you've already got? That is such a massive own goal. Fourthly, they were dividing up over issues like food. Food was uh, brought from animals that had been sacrificed to foreign gods, and Christians were eating that. And Paul was saying, well, you know what? Have a look at other people, think about other people and them looking at you doing that. And if it offends them, you should be putting their concerns above your own need to gobble up meat. Fifth problem, people were having massive spiritual moments in the weekly gatherings and they were very rudely kind of talking over each other. So when someone was trying to preach, if somebody else had a massive burst of tongues, out it would come and the result was complete chaos. Uh, So uh, he had to address that. And then finally, if that isn't enough, the final was a real humdinger, which is that some people were saying, you know what, this um, 
resurrection? Not sure it really happened. Now, if anything's going to bring Paul out with all guns blazing, Paul who met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, it's a comment like that. So here's a question for you. If you were leading this church and you had to write that letter, where are you going to start? Quite often, people always think of the sex one, don't they? You know, you go into the newsagent at Corinth and there's the Daily Mail. Church worker in stepmom sex shock. You know, that's the one that sort of goes into the frontal topics. But he says, first, first sentence, beyond the sort of initial greetings, he says, I'm pleading you, pleading with you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree together so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be united in mind and conviction. And the rest of the letter is really the outworking of all that pleading. Because St Paul's showing us how to go about getting people to live together, agree together, come together, especially when there's been quite a bit of acrimony in the past. Now, Oxford Vineyard Church this morning seems to be getting on with each other very well. I haven't been sued yet this week. Let's hope that's still the case by the end of the talk. But um, we live in a country, don't we, where it's anything but united, particularly this moment. And some people in this room here are very strong Labour supporters. Some people are strong Conservative supporters. Some people are Liberals. Some people support the Greens. Then different issue, some people here are very strong Remain supporters. Some people here today are Leave supporters. Those are the obvious examples. Then there are other divisions. Some people think that Israel is a very, very important part of theology and should be front and centre. Other people don't think that. Some people in the room today are pro-gun. Some people in this room today are anti-gun. Some people are keen on yoga. Some people here think yoga is a problem and that it opens you up to all sorts of unhelpful influences. Some people here believe in tithing and practice it. Some people don't believe in tithing and they don't practice. Some people do believe in tithing but don't practice it. <laughs> and then there's other people who in this room right now, they don't think any of these issues matter at all in the context of a climate change issue that is threatening the future of their children. So the issue is, is that we just know that our particular issue is, and the way we think about it, our opinion is the right one, isn't it? I mean, we know we're right. If only other people could just see it the way we see it, because it's so obvious that the way we think about it is the right way. very threatening, isn't it, to have to shift from our entrenched position, because we think we're being asked to compromise on the truth. And Paul is saying, well, you know what, just be very careful, because it sounds like you might have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so don't help me, God, because I've got it all sorted out. And actually, we're not being asked to compromise on the truth, we're being asked to compromise on our ego, on which none of us ever want to compromise. So if everything inside you recoiled at that last point and you said, well, theoretically, yeah, perhaps, perhaps that's the case, but actually in this particular context I'm right, then Paul says, watch out, because we all see in a glass darkly. And that means that we can't see our own blind spots. 
We haven't got the whole picture. And the other side, the people who are most diametrically opposed to our arguments, may be the very people who've got the insight into that little bit of truth that we haven't yet heard. Now, at the moment, we live in quite a comfortable society. We go to the supermarket, food on the shelves, we go to the garage, petrol comes out of the pumps, we turn on the tap, water pours out. It's all really quite convenient. But when pressures come, that's when we find out whether our unity is here for good, whether it actually kicks in and is a real thing. And we can find out that unity is a very precarious thing. It's not something we can take for granted. The way that we look after each other, the way we look out for each other, will be down to whether we have learned to love with a supernaturally changed heart. So our first heading today is to mull over the idea of loving each other from a place of integrity. So that's the background. Now, with the context in place, we can go forward to chapter 13. Have a look at the first two verses. If I speak in the tongue of men and angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Or if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. So Paul is actually starting here by pointing out what the Corinthians have already got. They were very fluent in spiritual gifts. Gifts of tongues was something that they were very happy to let others hear that they had. Prophecy came easily to them. They were very adept communicators. Fathoming mysteries. Corinth, like Athens, had more than its fair share of philosophers, teachers, scholars, all of whom had these brilliant minds. They like to pick up the latest thinking and the latest ideas and ideologies and debate them, weighing up all the different theories. Sounds familiar? Like somewhere up the road, maybe? They were gifted, they were talented, but there was a bit of a problem here, and Paul is actually saying, look, you've got this amazing spiritual skill set. So what? Your giftedness is one thing, yeah, there's no doubting you've got these gifts. Some of them are spiritual gifts, some of them are natural gifts, but there's something really missing here, and it's possible to have all that, and yet spiritually add up to nothing. That is quite harsh. So the million dollar question is, how did they get from a little community that had St. Paul as their shepherd, no less, to that mumbling, miserable, complaining group of people? There are many reasons that can happen, but the case with the Corinthians is that they started to just rely on their own natural gifts and spiritual gifts. And before they knew where they were, they were just going through the motions. So it turns out they were running on empty. And when the pressures and the temptations came, they discovered that they were essentially unchanged. There were large chunks of their heart that had been unsurrendered. So Paul is saying, be careful, because it's possible to live a completely ethical life and a sort of life of moral goodness, but you don't have love at the root of it. You have rather pride and fear. Timothy Keller, uh, a pastor in New York, he makes a very interesting point. He says, in a city like Corinth, all the emphasis was on being a success, 
whether we're talking about spiritual or natural gifts, the point's still the same. What they wanted was winners. It's about outward appearances, all about being professional. And what is being a professional? It's about delivering results, whatever the costs. You know, sometimes that cost means that you have to keep up professional appearances no matter what's going on in your inner world. And I'm not saying that it's not possible to do both, but with the pressures of work these days, quite often you're going to find you have to make a choice now and then. Because professional life, academic life, public life, they all can be very alluring. And sometimes they come with bells and whistles, accolades, medals, gongs, business travel, promotions, company car, pay rises, introductions to a new set. It all seems so important and real. But there can be a price to pay, which is that you must put it first. So the message of world of work today is it doesn't matter if you don't tend to your marriage or you don't speak to your marriage partner for two weeks. You just have to put that on hold because it mustn't change how you perform. Here comes another deadline. You know, work is not interested in your innermost self. You can just seal that bit off because it mustn't be allowed to, to come first. Work is saying, we own you because we pay you. And Jesus is saying, I own you because I paid for you. So which are you going to choose? Now, we can often find ourselves saying, look, I know I haven't had a quiet time or I haven't done this or I haven't done that, but I've just got to get this done, whatever it is, the lesson plan, the presentation, the hospital shift, whatever, conference, paper, financial results. So our next point is refuse to let the pressures of life eat into your quiet time. The Corinthians had started to hollow out in order to keep up outward appearances. You can pick that up from the second letter that Paul wrote to them. Their value system had become really quite distorted. So Paul has this dilemma now, which is that he has got to tell a congregation that they were no longer operating out of a place of integrity. And how do you tell them that? They're not being very loving in a loving way, <laughs> without sounding unloving yourself. Well, being St. Paul, he has the answer, which is that he steals one of Jesus' tricks. Jesus was a master of the parable, as we know. He would tell a little story with a kernel of hidden truth in it. And St. Paul does this kind of variation on the parable. So you'd listen to one of those stories and you'd think, oh, isn't that lovely? You know, love is patient, love is kind. It sounds so nice. And then you're halfway home you know, the truth bomb detonates, you're thinking, hang on a sec, is he saying that I'm not loving and I'm not patient and I'm not kind? Well, yes, Corinthians, that's exactly what he's saying. Verses 4 to 7, if you were patient, Corinthians, you would have been able to bear with another point of view. If you were kind, you'd be able to put somebody's person, somebody's concerns above your own. Love isn't envious. It doesn't help itself to somebody else's sexual partner. Love doesn't boast. People don't go around crowing about their spiritual one-upmanship if they've got love for front and centre in their life. Love's not proud. It doesn't trade on intellectual glories 
or natural gifting. It will recognise the need to humbly acknowledge God in every single aspect of life. Love doesn't dishonour others. You won't rush to shove a family member into court and sue them because your church is your family. Love's not easily angered. It's not going to flare up the moment it's disagreed with. It doesn't rejoice with evil. It doesn't relish the demolition of another person's viewpoints. So all these behaviours start surfacing when we disconnect ourselves from the lover of our soul. It's not that we mean to do it, it's just that we get so busy and distracted that Jesus becomes one more thing on our to-do list that we know we're not really going to get round to. So Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 4 to 7, you know what really, that list is everything that you're not. That's the hidden message. If you want to understand it in more depth, I strongly recommend the Timothy Keller talks that uh, have been going on through September about this subject. Incidentally, after Paul had done all that for the Corinthians, after he painstakingly laid out you know, all the ways in which they could help themselves by thinking through the gospel in their situations, it didn't work. They chose to reject his teaching and they became even more resistant. So to answer that question then, how did they end up like that? We could summarise it by saying their self-esteem was really way too high and had spilled over into arrogance. It's very easy to start thinking your own success is a sign that God is pleased with your life. And in contrast to their rejection, Paul offered them reconciliation. He was clearly living out the truth that love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I've had some correspondence with Andrew this week over that very one line, love keeps no record of wrongs. And my texts go something like this. Is that really true? <laughs> yes. Uh, no, no, but is it really, really true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How we long to believe it's true, but so many of us can't quite get it from our head into our hearts. Why is that? Well, we can can see that the Corinthians were missing out on a love encounter with God because of their high opinion of themselves. They had have no trouble believing that love keeps no record of wrongs because they didn't believe they were doing anything wrong. But there's another reason we can miss out on experiencing genuine love in our relationships. And that's because we have too low an opinion of ourselves. Listen to this uh, poem that Anya's going to read. Let's try again. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me, grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be here. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Oh my God, I cannot look on thee. The love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made your eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. 
So let my shame go where it doth deserve, and know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My God, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Thank you, Anya. Love tells us that we must sit down and eat with him. We must experience him. Nothing less will do. Our next heading is Love Keeps No Records of Wrongs. Dare to believe that it's true. Low self-esteem will lie to you. It will tell you that God theoretically keeps no record of wrongs, but in your case, he's got this, this and this against you. You'd better not forgive yourself in case you get to the day of judgment and find out he was holding these things against you after all. You know, low self-esteem says that there's an attic with a portrait in it looking like all kinds of modern art. You know what? And you don't want to get to judgment day. And you say, hi, Jesus, in the throne room. And there's Jesus on his throne. And there's the easel. And he says... Let's do the big reveal. There's this <laughs> awful portrait. <laughs> That's what low self-esteem says. <laughs> if we're caught in that trap, we often resort to bartering with God. Lord, I've done my duties, attended the prayer meetings, said my prayers, helped out at church. Will you please now answer my prayer? Those prayers are about relying on our goodness to earn our brownie points. And unlike the Corinthians, whose motive came from pride, this type of praying comes from anxiety and fear. And the one thing that helped me with this is realising that I needed to change the way I thought about repentance. Because we've got to get from the place where we run from daddy to the place, we've got to get to the place where we run from daddy when we've sinned, to the place where we run to daddy when we've sinned. Tell him everything. But then we have to decide that repentance does work. The prophet Bob Jones describes a time in his ministry when the same 10 people kept coming to the front to confess their sins week after week. And you know, he saw that pattern, he asked God, what's going on? And God said, there's no faith in their repentance. So the way through this is an encounter with Jesus who knows that you are unworthy, but he loves you anyway. Spurgeon says this, Satan tells me that I'm unworthy, but I always was unworthy, yet you have longed loved me, and therefore my unworthiness cannot be a barrier to you loving me now. A supernaturally changed heart is about moving from a general belief in faith to a tangible trust in a living person, and that is the heart that unites people. So our final point is take the time to meditate on God's love for you. God is patient. He puts up with our faults and our failures without grumbling. He's committed to us. He's in it for the long haul. God is kind. Genuine love is never unkind or mean. It respects others and it reaches out to them. We often think of God's intervention in terms of supernatural feats like healings and miracles but God's kindness really does have the same power to transform people's lives because it's always a personal kindness that's related just to you and it can get under the radar 
of so many of our defences. People just melt when they realise God is so kind towards them, personally. He's thought of you, he's thought of the way you tick, and he's done something just for you that speaks to you. All of us have the bandwidth to be more kind once we've experienced that from God. God is not boastful. He doesn't need to impress us. There are so many occasions in the gospel where Jesus slips away through the crowd or specifically asks people not to draw attention to what he's done for them. He doesn't need the limelight. God is not rude. He never needs to bully or manipulate. He would never put anyone down. He can be quite forthright at times and sometimes he will pinpoint some dangerous misconceptions about our state before God that we must deal with before we are able to understand any further truth. And he will get straight to the point to do that. But that's the mercy of God operating for our good. God keeps no record of wrongs. He doesn't keep an account of our mistakes so that he may one day judge us. Our regrets, failures, sins, mistakes, they just don't defeat God. They're the soil in which his forgiveness flowers. As Bill Johnson says, he's a lot better than we think. So we're going to have to change the way we think. God hopes and believes. He sees our potential even when we doubt and despair of ourselves. When we're having our worst day, God's default setting is to believe the best in you. And we could go on running through this text and thinking of all the ways in which God perfectly fits this description. But it's time to pray. Father, we pray that you would show us today where we might have treated gifts as character or tried to trade in good moral behaviour for a changed life. We want to come back to you, Father. We want to know you as we are fully known. Show us how we can do that and how we can put other people's concerns above our own. And would you show us how we can help to build this community from a changed heart? Amen.